0: Archduchess of Austria, Empress of the French, and Duchess of Parma are all titles that were held by one woman, Marie Louise of Austria, but you may know her as Napoleon Bonaparte's second wife. This episode of Footnoting History tells her story. Hey everyone, Christine here, to do something that regular listeners probably knew I would always do eventually let's talk about Napoleon's second empress, Marie-Louise. Although most of my attention regarding the Bonaparte world has gone to his first wife, Josephine, I felt it was time to talk about his lesser-discussed empress. Marie-Louise, in my experience, often gets sort of waved off as an afterthought because she didn't rise up with Napoleon like Josephine did, but I think you'll see that her life, before, during, and after her time with Napoleon, is interesting in its own right. So let's get started. The woman we know as Marie-Louise of Austria was born on December 12, 1791 in Vienna, though she was known simply as Louise by her closest family and associates. She was the oldest daughter of Archduke Francis of Austria and his second wife Marie-Thérèse. The Europe of Marie-Louise's childhood was going through an unsettled period that would last for the majority of her life, though what regions were unsettled and the people who caused the unsettling would change over time. Two significant events occurred that changed the makeup of the continent while she was still a toddler. One was that her grandfather, Holy Roman Emperor Leopold II, passed away. This caused her father to move up in the world as Holy Roman Emperor Francis II, and therefore it raised her own status. The other was that King Louis XVI of France and his wife, Queen Marie Antoinette, who happened to be Marie-Louise's great-aunt, were executed as part of the French Revolution. This did not, as you can guess, make Marie Louise's family happy. The rest of Marie Louise's formative years were filled with other significant European events. Austria and a variety of allies were often at war with France. The bloodiest part of the French Revolution ended, and eventually a Corsican-born soldier named Napoleon Bonaparte came to power there in 1799. He then became emperor in 1804, but conflict with countries like Austria, Russia, and Britain persisted. Further, in 1806, Marie-Louise's father dissolved the Holy Roman Empire. He was the last person to have the Holy Roman Emperor title, and instead he became known as Emperor Francis I of Austria. So what then was it like to be a little girl in one of the most important families in Europe during this period? Quite frankly, it was very isolating. Although Marie-Louise had numerous younger brothers and sisters, She was largely without companions her own age. She was left in the care of governesses, and everything that she said and did was carefully controlled. She excelled at music and art, and her love of nature and animals was nurtured. But all of her pets had to be female, and anything considered to be too sexual in nature was removed from books and papers before she read them. This way, her family felt that she would remain as pure and innocent as possible for as long as they could manage. Shortly after Marie Louise turned eighteen in the winter of eighteen o nine, her name started to come up in marriage discussions. If you've listened to my episodes about Josephine, which will be linked to this blog post on footnotinghistory dot com you know that by the end of eighteen o nine, Napoleon Bonaparte was very concerned with his legacy. He'd been married to Josephine for many years, and while she had two children from her first marriage, she had none with Napoleon When he started to have children with his mistresses. He knew it was time to have a child of his own and that that would not happen with Josephine. So he needed a bride that could be as guaranteed as possible to give him a legitimate son. He engaged in negotiations with both the Russian Tsar and Marie-Louise's father and ultimately decided to go the Austrian route, though he and Marie-Louise had never met. By choosing her, Napoleon hoped that he would get both a son and, perhaps, an ally who used to be an enemy in Austria. Marie-Louise had no desire to marry Napoleon. In fact, she was raised with strong anti-French sentiment and to view the country's latest ruler as nothing short of an ogre. Although she expressed her misgivings about being considered for a marriage to Napoleon, she obeyed her father's wishes when he made his decision in favor of the match in early 1810. Then there wasn't really much time to get used to the idea because things happened quite rapidly. A formal request was made on Napoleon's behalf for Marie-Louise's hand. The request was accepted and the marriage contract signed. On March 11th, Marie-Louise went through a ceremony of marriage by proxy. This meant that her uncle stood in for Napoleon, who wasn't there. She and her retinue set off for France, and along the way she went through a rite of passage where she separated herself from Austria and was symbolically transformed into a woman of France, similar in nature to what Marie-Antoinette had done decades prior. The whirlwind nature of Marie-Louise's incorporation into Bonaparte France continued. Napoleon, overly excited to meet his new wife, didn't even wait for her to arrive at their decided meeting point to see her. He rode out in advance, stopping her progress practically in the middle of the road because his impatience got the best of him. Once they officially did get to Compiègne, he got reassurance that a proxy marriage was good enough to count as real and immediately disappeared off to spend the night with Marie-Louise and consummate the Union. This was followed by two more marriage ceremonies, meaning that, when all was said and done, Marie-Louise vowed to be Napoleon's wife three times in only a handful of weeks. The first French ceremony was a civil one, and it was followed by a religious ceremony in a specifically created chapel in the Louvre. Despite hoping to, it should be noted that she was never given a proper coronation. Nevertheless, surrounding all this marriage excitement, of course, were celebrations and processions. Before the ceremony, the couple entered Paris on a route that went from the still-being-built Arc de Triomphe down to the Louvre. After it, parties were thrown for the people with wine flowing, music playing, and special open-air theaters holding performances. Even after the original festivities ended, parties continued to toast the Union for months and months the newlyweds attended fetes hosted by everybody from Napoleon's sister Pauline to Prince Schwarzenberg representing Austria. Though not all of these were happy events. The latter involved an outbreak of a fire that caused Marie-Louise to be rushed from the scene while Napoleon directed the firefighters. Several people died and others were scarred by the flames. Here, like with her childhood, it's easy to get caught up in the flurry of events around Marie-Louise, So, let's pause again and talk about what was going on for her between herself and Napoleon. According to Napoleon's stepdaughter, Hortense, in the lead-up to his meeting his new empress, Napoleon was eager to hear good things about her appearance, but could not get confirmation that she was pretty. She was tall, with a decent complexion, and considered to be of average appearance, at least facially. But as far as Napoleon was concerned, it was actually more important that she was going to be fertile because women in her family were known to have a lot of children so it seemed like she could too. I know it sounds rather coarse to say that, but it was genuinely Napoleon's biggest priority. Although Marie-Louise was raised to think of him as an enemy, she received a letter from Napoleon before they met that helped defrost her heart. It was kind and professed his desire to win her affection, which is something she liked hearing. Upon meeting Napoleon, she told him that his portrait did not do him justice. She seems to have quickly abandoned her childhood hatred of him And despite him being over twice her age, he was past 40 at this point, she fell in love with him. The two spent a lot of time together, so much so that historians have called Napoleon obsessed with Marie Louise to the point of neglecting his other duties. Personally, though, the attention that Napoleon and Marie Louise paid to one another paid off. In March of 1811, less than a year after they met, Marie Louise gave birth to their son, following a long, terrible labor during which Napoleon told the medical professionals present to save the mother over the child. Luckily, all went off safely, and Napoleon got his much-awaited legitimate son and heir. A 101-gun salute rang out to announce the birth of the baby, and he was given the name Napoleon Francis Joseph Charles, along with the hefty title of the King of Rome. Shortly after, Marie-Louise wrote to her father, saying, "...even had I not loved him previously," Nothing can stop me from loving him now. End quote. Domestic bliss, however, did not translate into universal adoration in France nor peace with other countries. From the start, there were those not thrilled with the union. You may remember from my episode about Napoleon and Josephine's divorce that 13 cardinals of the church chose not to attend the religious wedding because they believed the marriage was invalid since the Pope had not annulled Napoleon's marriage to Josephine. Also, While Josephine, whom Marie-Louise never wanted to meet, had been pretty popular and known for her ability to charm and appear at ease in her position as Napoleon's consort, Marie-Louise was an entirely different creature. Being Austrian, she reminded the French people of their executed queen, Marie-Antoinette, which was either good or bad, depending on your political stance. Marie-Louise's awkward, stilted way of holding herself was read as imperious, while her shyness was interpreted as being aloof. Napoleon's family, who really didn't like a lot of people, really didn't like Marie-Louise and the high society stock that she came from. One term often used to describe her in modern historical works is haughty. Although Marie-Louise and Napoleon didn't let any of this lukewarm reception stop them from having a good relationship, other forces outside of their marriage were moving in such a way that their time together wouldn't last all that long. Napoleon's control of his empire was cracking the most superstitious of French people might have given a side-eye to Marie-Louise as a result. After all, Napoleon had been glorious and victorious while married to Josephine. Now he was scrambling to keep things together in an increasingly hostile Europe and losing major battles. Of course, Marie-Louise was hardly on the battlefield with him, but that wouldn't stop people from making such an association. But the real trouble for Marie-Louise's life as empress came in 1814. While Napoleon was off trying to save his empire against the Allied forces that included Austria, despite the marriage alliance, Russia, and Britain, Marie-Louise remained in Paris as the official regent with her son and members of the Bonaparte family. This whole time, by the way, she kept up positive relations with her father, even though he was fighting against her husband. When Marie-Louise learned that the Allies were approaching the city, she argued that it was important for her and her son to stay in Paris and keep people calm. However, there's no world where Napoleon wanted his wife and son to fall into enemy hands, so she was eventually forced to accept that she had to leave with his family. Soon after, she learned that the Allied forces had taken Paris, and Napoleon had arrived too late to stop it. Marie-Louise would never live in Paris, nor see her husband again. While the Allies worked on Napoleon's abdication deal, Marie-Louise's father, through various agents, eventually convinced his stressed and depressed daughter and her son to come see him, which they did at Rambouillet. Then Marie-Louise and little Napoleon went on to Vienna, where she was welcomed like a beloved long-lost child. When Napoleon's abdication was complete, she was informed that the monarchy was being restored in France, that she was being given a new title, the Duchess of Parma, and that Napoleon was being sent to live in exile on the island of Elba. At this point, She very much wanted to go and join him there because he was her husband and she still loved him. But her father and his minister Metternich had other plans. And now, dear listeners, we enter my favorite part of Marie-Louise's life story and actually why I wanted to cover her. When Marie-Louise decided to go on a health holiday to recover from recent events and take the waters, she was provided an escort by the Austrian government. The man assigned to the task was an Austrian diplomat and soldier named Count Adam von Neitberg. Adam was born in 1775, making him about 16 years Marie-Louise's senior. He had a distinguished career in the Austrian army, and many years before meeting Marie-Louise, he lost an eye during an encounter with the French, so he always had that one eye covered. He had zero, and I mean zero love for the French, had worked as an ambassador for Austria turning multiple people against Napoleon, and fought at famous battles like Leipzig, which Napoleon lost. Adam had a strong build and a short mustache and was very cultured with interests in music and poetry. He was currently married to an Italian countess, with whom he had several children who had been born before they got married. Now, Adam's job was to be with Marie-Louise all the time. He listened to her talk about Napoleon, who she was still writing to and assuring that she loved, and he got to know her. He was also slowly working his charm on her to try and dissuade her from her desire to go to Elba. By the time they returned to Vienna, they were lovers. This caused a significant shift in Marie-Louise's determination to go to Elba. And by significant shift, I mean it completely evaporated and she had no desire to go anymore. Even her letter writing to Napoleon would eventually dry up. She was thrilled to have Adam with her all the time and in order to make things appear on the up-and-up, he was designated as her chamberlain. When Napoleon returned to France and seized control again, Marie-Louise opted to keep herself and her son away from him, even though he asked her to come back. She had a lot to consider. As part of his first abdication, remember, she had been granted the title Duchess of Parma, which she didn't want to lose. She also had to think of her son's future, and of course her relationship with Adam. So, Marie-Louise and her son heard of Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo in exile to St. Helena in 1815 from a safe distance. That same year, Adam became a widower, and although Marie-Louise remained married to her exiled husband, it did make their relationship easier. In 1816, Marie-Louise was finally able to go to the Duchy of Parma and take over control. Her son remained in Vienna to be educated as a proper Austrian boy, With hopefully no attachment to France, which was basically Napoleon's worst nightmare. For example, he was known as Franz because there's no way they were going to be calling him Napoleon or King of Rome. In Parma, Marie Louise was well liked by the people, and Adam remained by her side, taking care of most of the official business. Together, and later on in her life, she focused a lot on music. The duo proved incredibly capable at their jobs and settled into Parma nicely. They also had three children together, a daughter born in 1817, a son born in 1819, and later a second daughter who died in infancy. The thing that blows my mind about all of this and why I find it so interesting is that no one back in Vienna knew about the children. Marie-Louise and Adam knew how it would look that they kept having these children out of wedlock, so they kept it quiet. The children each had a title, though their parenthood was pretended to be unknown. And somehow, word never got back to Marie-Louise's family that they were hers. Then, in mid-1821, Marie-Louise learned that Napoleon had passed away on St. Helena. She was free. What happened next, of course, was that she married Adam immediately, but it still wasn't until many years later that she told her family about her children. The couple remained together until his death following a series of heart issues in 1829. Three years later, she suffered another personal loss. Her son Franz, who had been accorded the courtesy title Duke of Reichstadt, passed away in 1832 from tuberculosis. He had military ambitions, but they went largely unrealized, and he never wielded any political power. He had spent almost his entire life at the Austrian court, well-loved by his family, and his usually distant mother was with him when he passed. He was interred in the family crypt, though in 1940, his remains were moved from Austria to Paris by his father Napoleon through the order of Adolf Hitler. But this was to happen over 100 years in the future. Meanwhile, trouble was going on in Parma. An insurrection largely directed at Marie-Louise's current First Minister occurred that required Austrian backing to be put down. But as she had her entire life, Marie-Louise just plugged along. She married for the third time in February of 1834. This time it was to Count Charles-René de Bombelle, who happened to be her newest chamberlain. Born at Versailles in the 1780s, he was the closest in age to Marie-Louise of her three husbands. He was a good administrator and enjoyed things like the opera. This marriage she also didn't broadcast widely, preferring to keep it a secret from her family. The two had no children and seemed to have a pretty stable domestic life, They stayed together and took care of Parma until Marie-Louise died on December 17, 1847, at the age of 56. Her death had been preceded by a period of rapidly deteriorating health, where those who had known her in her younger years were moved to comment that she had aged poorly. Despite calls from the people of Parma to have her buried there, her body was returned to her family in Vienna. Marie-Louise is one of those people whose life started off looking like it was going to be one very specific thing, Napoleon's wife and Empress of the French, but it ended up being something completely different. She started off as a girl viewed as easily malleable and innocent, who was commended by Napoleon for her honesty. As an adult, she had no problem hiding her relationships and much preferred a quiet domestic life far from the old, uncomfortable imperial spotlight. Her time as such as Parma extended in person from 1816 to 1847. That's 31 years. Yet the reason most people know of her is because of her marriage to Napoleon, even though they only spent four years in each other's presence, and she was married two more times after that. So I guess what you could say is that Napoleon is really the footnote in her story. Thank you for joining me for this newest edition of my Revolutionary France series, For sources about Marie-Louise and other episodes in this series, please visit footnotinghistory.com. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter if you want our episodes delivered straight to your inbox the minute they're released. And don't forget, the best stories are always in the footnotes.